Good morning. My name is Patrick, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Today is Tuesday, February 8, 2022. I'll be reading from a book called The Resilient Soul, and today's story is called Take Care of Yourself. And I'll start with this quote. What is most precious becomes memory. Paths not taken are forever gone. The only useless endeavor is to resist the command knit into our very souls. Move. Move on. Period. End of quote. And that's from Unknown. Here we go. Two nights before our wedding, my fiancé, a recovering alcoholic, drank an entire bottle of vodka. His friend found the empty bottle and stated the obvious. You don't need this in your life, as he showed it to me. I really didn't. I had one dysfunctional marriage behind me, and I was taking care of a disabled daughter. But I loved Tom and wanted to marry him. I promise I'll never drink again, he said. How naive I was to believe him, but I knew very few people who were addicted to alcohol and no one who was as close to me. I really didn't know anything about the disease, and I wasn't paying attention to the fact that Tom's first marriage had ended because of alcohol abuse. I ignored family and friends who were trying to dissuade me from marrying him because I wanted someone, and so did he. We were married in November. The following May, he relapsed, drinking off and on until New Year's Day. During that time, I attended a few meetings and told him if he didn't stop drinking, the marriage was over. He finally stopped and was dry for three years. I really thought he was on that long road to recovery when he began turning to alcohol to soothe the pain of an arthritic back. I was sympathetic to his pain, but at the same time, I was furious. With all of the treatment programs he had gone through in his first marriage, surely he knew alcohol was poison to his body. And then there was his promise the night before our wedding. I'll never drink again. I had married him for better or worse, as my friends reminded me, the same friends who had told me I shouldn't marry him. And they were right. I was his wife. I did care about him, and I was the kind of person who tried to help those she loved. I felt I needed to give him another chance. However, even as I got him into a rehab program, I wasn't sure I wanted to stay with him. Still angry about broken promises, I had no intention of attending the weekly family meetings but the intake counselor convinced me I should for myself, and I was glad I did. At the first meeting, I was astonished when the family education director says, it goes against the Christian ethic that says, help thy brother when I tell you to let your brother be and take care of yourself. Take care of yourself was repeated again and again for four weeks until his bold black letters were engraved in our brains. The addicted loved one, we were told, was anesthetized. We weren't. We had nothing to dull our emotional pain, and the more we focused on them, the sicker we became. But if we stopped worrying about them and took care of ourselves, there was hope. Easy to say, not so easy to do. I found myself doing some of the things on the list of enabling behaviors. With one eye, I would watch what he ate. I panicked when I saw he was using NyQuil, which contains a lot of alcohol. Occasionally, I would look in his car or the shed for an empty bottle when his face was particularly flushed. There were definite signs that he was heading into another major relapse, and my searching for empty bottles wasn't going to help him or me. I didn't know what would. Tom had lost his full-time job, had a new part-time one, but that insurance company wouldn't authorize a full month of rehab, and I knew 10 days wouldn't help much. He was too sick. I was frantic and he was out of control, using credit cards, drinking, and driving. I took away the credit cards, but I couldn't stop him from drinking. I was becoming sick, emotionally and physically. 
My disabled daughter was distraught as she saw the toll the disease was taking on me. I had to protect her and myself. He would have to leave. To tell him we were separating was going to require more inner strength than I had. At AA meetings, I found people from all faiths who believed in a higher power. My higher power was the Heavenly Father, the God of the Christian scriptures. I needed his help to confirm my decision and to comfort me. Searching for that comfort one beautiful afternoon in early August, I took my daughter to her sister's and drove to the small cemetery where I sat alone in the shade of a maple tree and prayed. Heavenly Father, please help me to know what to do. Birds twittered, leaves rustled in a breeze. I listened, and then the words, take care of yourself, came to my mind. The same words I had heard over and over again in the family education systems. I felt peace flow like a river through my body and knew my prayers were answered. Getting the answer was the easy part. The difficult part was confronting Tom. I felt so sad. Even though the marriage was crumbling, largely because of alcohol, Tom was a good, kind, very Christian man who had the gift of charity. He had helped my children and me so much I didn't want to hurt him. I hoped he would be able to take care of himself and recover, but deep down I doubted he could. He was 62 years old and he had been drinking since his early 20s. His dependency had taken its toll on his body and his spirit. As they say in AA, I had to let go and let God. That Saturday morning we were sitting together in the van in the grocery store parking lot. I took a deep breath and said in a voice that was amazingly calm and steady, Listen carefully, Tom. If you take one more drink, we're going to separate. That afternoon, he went out to get a part for the van. He was gone a long time. Too long. I wasn't surprised when through the kitchen window I saw the van weave from side to side as he pulled into the driveway. I wasn't surprised, though. I was weak with anxiety as I saw him stagger when he got out. He opened the hood of the van and glared at me as I went over to the driver's side and opened the door. My legs were trembling so much I was afraid they wouldn't hold me up as I reached for the paper sack on the floor of the van and found the almost empty bottle of vodka. It's an old bottle, he said in a surly voice. I shook my head. No, Tom, I was in the car with you this morning. There was no bottle in the van then. He was silent. Do you remember what I said to you this morning? Yes, he said, avoiding my eyes. I can't live with this any longer. It's making us sick. Maybe you can live with your daughter until you can get an apartment. You'll have to work it out, and then we can see about getting together again. I'm sorry, I said. So am I. He raised his sad eyes, but this time he didn't beg me to give him another chance. This time, he knew I wouldn't. Feeling relief, feeling pain, I went in my room and cried. He left, and two weeks later, he committed suicide. He wrote a note to his children that said he could see no way out. He couldn't recover. Loved ones of a suicide often blame themselves, but I don't. I know the choices he made in his life were his choices, not mine. Rather, because of my faith in a loving, merciful God, and because I've experienced many difficult trials in my 64 years, I've learned how to survive and choose to survive well. I have family and friends. I exercise. I write stories and poetry. I am involved in my church, and I am fully alive, as I believe Tom is also a man who loved and served his family and who is no longer burdened by disease that had him in its awful grip. I was comforted when he died and am still comforted by my faith in a God who says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. 
Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It's from John 14:27. I take one day at a time, enjoy the rain and the sun, enjoy the ice and the freezing winds, and feel peace. That was contributed by Ann Best. Chicken Soup for the Unsinkable Soul. I told you I met the authors when there were young authors in the late 80s in a small seminar in Costa Mesa. I have autographed books and cassettes, and they talked about this great dream that one day they would like to have a New York's bestseller. And I was so surprised when I saw the books rolling out. I said, they made their goal. God bless them. They tried so hard, worked so hard. They talked about having imagination and keeping your goal in front of you. As a matter of fact, one guy, he said he pasted it on his bedroom ceiling. When he woke up and when he went to sleep, he would see his goal in front of him. And then he said he would keep three by five cards and flip through them all through the day. And those were his goals. And he would say, they would say, I am easily and happily going to the Bahamas. I am easily and happily having a New York bestseller book. I am easily and happily going to New York. I am easily and happily learning how to be entertaining. Things like that. And he said, the Bahamas one, he got a call about a year later, and he says, they said, Sir, me and my husband, we paid for this trip and we can't go. Will you and your wife like to go to the Bahamas? He's been saying that little card for a year. Sure enough, they went to the Bahamas. I am easily and happily enjoying my reading to you guys. Our next story is called A New Day for Dorothy. Page 5. As the lady talked, I tried to concentrate on the beautiful room around us instead of on her words, for she was telling me about Dorothy, her eight-year-old daughter, the middle one of her five children, a mentally retarded child. She never spoke in a single word, the mother repeated. The doctors say it's hopeless. We took her up to Boston last year and... I drifted away and I fixed my thoughts on the green damask draperies framing tall windows that looked out on Park Avenue. How handsome the whole room was with its crystal chandeliers, its con concert grand piano, its fresh flowers everywhere. What a lovely woman the mother was, an opera singer whose name I had known even before her later letter came asking me if I would consider a job with Dorothy. Yes, a lovely woman, and especially her love for this little girl, whom all the experts said she would be put away. The love was the thing of, to concentrate on. And so while pretending to listen, I closed my ears to the result of reflexes tests and encephalograms. In my years of working with retarded children, I have discovered that my attention 
must not go to the lacks, but to the special strengths of such children. There was strength in each one of them. I was sure I believed that a little of God lives in every one of us, and that to bring out is the only job of any teacher. Dorothy and I met the next weekend. With me, it was love at first sight. This beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed child, surely a very lovely person, lived in such a form. But her part, Dorothy, only stared at me with inscrutable eyes. It's one of her quiet days, thank heaven, her mother said. On her wild ones, there's no controlling her. My mind considered those wild days. I liked the sound of them. They told me there was a person here trapped in whatever chemical or physical prison, but an individual struggling to be seven to be seen and recognized. I told her mother I would try the job for a month. It was a hard one from the beginning, and that afternoon I would take Dorothy to a special class for retarded children. She just sat in the chair, staring straight ahead, making no effort to join in the activities. She's unreachable, her teacher told me. I don't know why they keep sending her. her, her. I gazed around the room at the other children, all engrossed in simple mechanical tasks, and I suddenly agree with Dorothy that was challenging about fitting a square peg. What was challenging about fitting a square peg in a square hole? With her parents' permission, we stopped going there. Dorothy's problem everywhere, it seemed to me, was the non-expectation of everyone around her. I remember breakfast one morning when the other four children and their nurse had come into town. The others quickly finished their cereal, but Dorothy, dazzled by the activity around her, hadn't touched hers. Just spoon it into her, the nurse cried impatiently. She can eat by herself, I said. I guess she's just too interested in what's going on. Interested? Nurse gave a snort of contempt. She doesn't have any more idea what's happening than that canary. It's a shame she's allowed at the table. She just upsets the other children. It wasn't true. Dorothy's brothers and sisters, especially her older sister Martha, seemed genuinely happy to be with her. But even Martha had fallen into Nursie's habit of talking about her. Dorothy looks nice today. Dorothy's hair needs combing. Shall I do it? Rather than to, to, to her. It was so easy to assume that because she had no words, she had no understanding either. I understood the problem. I felt it most during our daily walk in Central Park. It was October, warmly sunny Indian summer, and Dorothy and I spent hours just walking. When the silence threatened to observe us both, I sang. I started with the hymns I remember from my own childhood back in England. Dorothy seemed to like the songs, for her feet marched in time to the music, and her head nodded rhythmically. We also brought sketch pads and crayons to the park. I was fascinated by some drawings I had found in Dorothy's room, a pattern of graceful waving lines drawn over and over again. What it meant, I had no idea, but it certainly wasn't scribble. 
as Nurse impatiently called it. And so we would sit on a park bench and sketch. I drew trees and strolling people and the loft skyline beyond the park. And Dorothy drew pigeons. I saw the very first time what they were, not perhaps outside of the pigeons like other people's draw, but the souls of the birds instead. The very way it feels to be a pigeon. Faster than my eyes could follow, her hand move, the wings in flight, the thrust for her the neck, and the self-important walk. The golden autumn passed too swiftly. Then a day dawned when the rain streamed down the tall windows and wind rattled the doors. So Dorothy sat on the piano bench beside me as I sang the songs I had sung in the park. I started off with one of Fenwick Holmes' Song of the Silence. Halfway through this joyous song, the miracle happened. One moment I was singing alone, the next Dorothy was singing with me, word for word and perfect tune. Electrified, I played on and on without a break, praying that the spell would not be broken. What a memory, how marvelous her mind had retained the words of song after song, far better than the average eight-year-old. I heard someone sob, and I turned and saw Dorothy's mother in the doorway, tears streaming down her cheek, unable to do anything but hold out her arms to her child. From that moment on, life was different for Dorothy. From singing, it was not far to speaking. All the words with music always came first. She made up songs for everything. Water, a washcloth, see what I mean? Knees that are dirty will soon be clean. At the plantarian, I can watch the stars. There is Venus, and here is Mars. Other changes took place in Dorothy. Her tensions disappeared along with the frustrations of a spirit bottled up. So did her wildness. The nurse never adjusted to the difference in her and took another job. As Dorothy continued to learn, I lengthened my stay just another month until she learned the alphabet. When I left, Dorothy was a poised, self-sufficient 13-year-old. Normal? Not if normal means average. All of us have strong points and weak points, and in Dorothy, everything is extreme. But this means extreme of knowing and expressing that most of us never reach. Those wavy lines, for instance, the ones she drew again and again, when she had enough words, she told me, that's what the wind looks like. Dorothy, your eyes so deep down, important things, your ears hear silent things. Your world is set to music. Oh, oh, if God left something out of you, it was only to fill it with himself. Story by Francis E. Leslie. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. No wonder is up on the front. Wonderful story. Don't you agree? Let's have a small prayer for all the children that are and adults too that are locked in their prisons of their minds and there's a wise person. Speak to them like they're normal. Heavenly Father, may we speak to them the normal, encouraging them and tell them jokes and stories, Father. Maybe even the ones that are in, in a coma. May we speak laughter and joy and believe. The greatest thing is to believe they're normal, to believe 
that all is well in the face of the enemy who's trying to keep them down. We pray for those children and those people locked in their minds and in their abilities. Be free, be set free, spirit, soul, and mind, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, our last story for today is Growing Roots. That's on page two. Our strength grows out of our weakness, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Did you hear what I said? What did I say? Our strength grows out of our weakness. Boy, we must have a lot of strength, don't we? Here we go. When I was growing up, I had an old neighbor named Dr. Gibbs. He didn't look like any doctor I ever known. Every time I saw him, he wore denim overalls and a straw hat, the front brim of which was green, sunglass plastic. He smiled a lot. He's a smile that matched his hat, old and crinkly and well-worn. He never yelled at us for playing in his yard. I remember him as someone who was a lot nicer than circumstance warrant. When Dr. Gibbs wasn't saving lives, he was planting trees his house sat on 10 acres, and his life's goal was to make it a forest. The good doctor had some interesting theories concerning plant husbandry. He came from the no-pain, no-gain school of horticulture. He never watered his new trees, which flew in the face of conventional wisdom. Once I asked why, he said that watering plants spoil them, and that if you water them, each successive tree generation will grow weaker and weaker so you have to make things rough for them and weed out the weeny trees early on <laughs> he talked about how watering trees made for shallow roots and how trees that weren't watered had to grow deep roots in search of moisture i took him to mean that deep roots were to be treasured so he never watered his trees. He planted oak, and instead of watering it every morning, he beat it with a roll-up newspaper, smack, slap, pow. I asked him why he did that, and he said it was to get the tree's attention. Dr. Gibbs went to glory a couple of years after I left home. Every now and again, I walked by his house and looked at the trees that I watched him plant some 25 years ago. They're granite strong now, big and robust. Those trees wake up in the morning and beat their chest and drink their coffee black. <laughs> I planted a couple of trees a few years back, carried water to them for a solid summer, sprayed them, prayed over them, and the whole nine yards. Two years of coddling has resulted in trees that are expected to be weighted on hand and foot. Whenever a cold wind blows in, they tremble and shadow their branches sissy trees funny thing about those trees of dr gibbs adversity and deprivation seem to benefit them in ways comfort and ease could not every night before i go to bed i check on my two sons i stand over them and watch their little bodies the rising and falling of life within i often pray for them mostly i pray that their lives will be easy lord spare them from hardship but lately I've been thinking that it's time to change my prayer. 
This change has to do with the inability of cold winds that hit us at the core. Excuse me, inedible. Inedible of cold winds that hit us at the core. I know my children are going to encounter hardship, and my praying they won't is naive. There's always a cold wind blowing somewhere, so I am changing my evening tide prayer because life is tough, whether we want it to be or not. Instead, I'm going to pray that my son's roots grow deep so they can draw strength from the hidden sources of the eternal God. Too many times we pray for ease, but that's a prayer seldom met. What we need to do is pray for roots that reach deep into the eternal. So when the rains fall and the winds blow, we won't be swept asunder. By Philip Gully. Greetings, family. We're going to be reading Chicken Soup for the Soul today. Another story from page 48. For the Recovering Soul. This story is entitled, Friends of Bill W., Please Come to the Gate. Let's go ahead and open with a serenity prayer, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. James D. Davis was quoted by saying, Once you learn to walk, crawling is out of the question. Sometimes in the early 1990s, I was treating a woman in an intensive outpatient chemical dependency group. Let's call her Grace. Grace was a flight attendant and had been suspended from her job with a major airline due to her untreated alcoholism. She had been stealing the little miniature little bottles, drinking in airport bars and uniform and so on. Her employer, realizing she needed treatment, sent her to us. After the eight-week program, I suggested to her it might be a good idea to solidify her foundation in recovery before returning to work, as she would be working in a high-risk environment, serving alcohol, being out of town, alone, etc. Grace did, however, to work shortly after completing outpatient treatment. One day, while she was departing from a plane at the end of a long day, A major craving for alcohol overpowered her. There she was in the L.A. International Airport pulling her roller bag behind her when this massive craving to drink came over her. She tried to just think it through or just forget about it, 
but it was way too powerful. It was so powerful, in fact, that she was resigned to the fact that she would just go drink. Grace thought, oh, the heck with it. I'll get another job, or maybe no one will find out anyway. But deep down inside, Grace did not want to drink. She truly had wanted to stay sober, but she was in trouble. On her way to the bar in the airport, Grace had a moment of sanity. She stopped, picked up the airport paging phone, and said, Would you please page friends of Bill W.? She paused quickly, looking around for an empty gate. To come to gate 12? Question mark. Within minutes, over the paging system in the L.A. International Airport, will friends of Bill W. please come to gate 12? Will friends of Bill W. please come to gate 12? Most people in recovery know that asking if you are a friend of Bill W. is an anonymous way to identify yourself as a member of AA. In less than five minutes, there were about 15 people at the gate from all over the world that brought tears of amazement, relief, and joy to grace. They had a little meeting there in that empty gate, total strangers prior to that moment. Grace discovered that two of those people had gone out of their boarding lines and missed their flights to answer that call for help. They had remembered what they had seen on many walls of meeting rooms. When anyone anywhere reaches out their hand for help, I want the hand of AA to be there, and for that, I am responsible. Grace did not drink that day. I would venture to guess that none of those people who came to gate 12 drank that day either. Instead, Grace had a moment of sanity. Realized she could not do it on her own, took the action of asking for help, and received it immediately. This help is available to all of us if we want it. Sincerely ask for it. It never fails. Jim C. Jr. All right, man, that's one of the best stories I've heard yet. That is awesome. Friends of Bill W. Our next story is called Around the Room. On my way to a meeting last night, I was listening to a talk show on the radio. The guest this night was a man who went through treatment some years ago, but was never touched by the power there. Or maybe he was and had to find a way to justify not going forward. At any rate, he apparently wrote a book slamming every conceivable aspect of traditional recovery. Surrender was weakness. Fellowship was a sham. Recovery was a cult. For him, unmanageability was the same as option for being a victim. He was above such crutches and saw himself as a hero who was willing to tell the truth. Anyone can make fun of anything. I felt sorry for him and wish he could come with me to the meeting I was going to. Actually, our situation isn't really a meeting. We meet at a church that has a maybe eight or ten meetings going on at the same time. The meetings include AA as well as Al-Anon, Narcotics Anonymous, but also Gamblers Anonymous, GA, and Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA, and several other flavors of recovery. We all finish about 10 and close together. Maybe as many as 100 people make a circle as big as is needed to include everyone and close with the Lord's Prayer. Wherever a person may stand in that circle, most of the faces of the others are within sight. For sure, anyone can make fun of anything, but I wish the man who felt had been harmed by traditional recovery 
could stand where I was and see the faces I looked at and marvel at every week. Stan, a young and built with the long, smooth muscles of a panther, he is a year clean of meth, but the, the coiled strength of the drug still lives in him. It runs an inch under his skin, looking for a way to break out. But there he stands, hair bleached, snow white, tall and proud, neck laced tight against his neck, and with him are his two small children of five and eight. Stan went back to court to get custody of his children from their still drug-using mother. He was never parented, much so he has little experience to fall back on as to how daddy should act, but he tries. Every week he shows up with his kids, showing them all the love he has been taught in the fellowship. No parent has ever tried harder to give his or her children a firm foundation. Next to him, holding his hand, is an older woman named Bonnie. She has adopted Stan and his children. She is her grandmother. Bonnie put it very simply, We need each other. It is what God wants. Further down the line stand two women, obviously friends, holding hands in the circle. At one time in both of their lives, they were exotic dancers. Who, know, who knows what else? They are both light wires, full of fun love to joke around, and yet there's a deep and a hardness in their eyes that only comes from having the worst side of humanity. But there they stand, hand in hand, sober clean, celebrating their long ride back into the light. Texas Tom is a little further on. He has been in and out of our meeting rooms for several years. His last relapse was a bad one. He actually lived at the crack house he used to for the most part of four months. It's a miracle he is still alive, but even bigger miracle is that he has come back again. He is so full of guilt and shame. This night, he can barely hold his head up. But there he is, included in a circle of love that ultimately is stronger than any addiction. Mary and Frank stand together. They always do. She is Elnon and Frank is AA. Both have been in the fellowship for over 20 years. They have a hell of a story, but for so many years, if you saw them on the street, they would appear the most normal, ordinary, middle-class, suburban couple. They have two biological sons and dozen of others they have adopted over the years. Not legally, but in a spiritual sense. Their doors is always open. Members of the fellowship who have no other place to go in holy days are always packed around their table. They are the best of good people. I spy Art across the room. He is a giant of a man who says he spent nearly all of his adult life in prison. He first got sober in prison and now three years later is still clean through the love of the fellowship and his God. He says he fears nothing on the face of this earth. Having gone through what he said has, no one doubts it. But tonight he shared that he just found out he has a 21-year-old son and has decided he would try to make contact with the young man. That scares him. He says his legs feel like jelly, but there he stands in the circle, clean, sober, and facing the hardest fight of his life. On and on the circle goes. Cat who killed a man while driving under the influence and did four years in prison now clean and giving back. John, 17 years clean, who started a business for the sole purpose of giving work to people no one will ever trust. 
Bobby and his wife, Root, with the old scar of a cutter crawling up his arm, who come each week with their little daughter, Charity, the young and the old, conservatives and young men with shaved heads and the tattoo, and those who would never think of such a thing, the single and the married, and many who once were, some financially successful and some who steal toilet paper from McDonald's, an endless variety but with a 24-karat com- commonality. They are all chemical-free and making something beautiful of their lives. I remember the man on the talk show driving home and thought, If this is a cult, may we all be so lucky to belong. By Ernie Larson. Beautiful, beautiful story, Ernie. Thank you for writing that in. Our next story is called The Miracle in the Making. The divine guidance often comes when the horizon is the blackest. From Gandhi. It's like a bad dream, a surprise party without the cake and minus the merriment. For weeks you've been planning to save the life of someone you love. At times it feels more like plotting, sneaking out to meetings you can't talk about, relieving old hurts to get them down on paper just right, wondering how you'll ever get him there, dreading the look in his face. You had the same look on your face many times through the years because you love an alcoholic who couldn't seek help. Today you're doing it for him. You held him close all night as is to reassure him of your love and shield him from the pain. You packed for him without his knowing, sneaking his hairbrush and his favorite slippers into a bag that is waiting in a friend's car. You kiss him goodbye like this way was any other day, wondering if he would ever again say, I love you, back. And now, half hour before his arrival, you sit at the intervention specialist's office with your sweetheart's two children and two colleagues who are also his good friends. His company personnel manager is bringing him here on the pretext of some meeting important to the boss. Your damp palms smush the carefully edited script You hold, someone cracks a nervous little joke, and you laugh softly before returning to your silent prayers. At last, at last, yet too soon, you hear the familiar voice and footsteps coming down the hall. The door opens and his voice breaks off, questioning in his eyes as he scans the room. Confusion and fear, the very look you dreaded, erode his half-smile, and you struggle to look loving yet firm. The intervention has begun. What's going on here is the first of his many questions. The intervention specialist introduces himself and explains how he helps families and industries to help other people. The suspicion and confusion grow. Alcohol is not even mentioned until the first friend recalls a past drinking incident. The letter from his boss who is out of town tells him what a valuable employee he is, that he has the firm's support in getting well. He rolls his eyes and snorts. But then the woman he loves and his children recite their rehearsal speeches about the drunkenness and the pain it has cost him. Please get help, they urge. Today there is no more denial. The drinker wipes away his tears. And then your part is done. The intervention specialists take over, negotiating him into treatment by urging him to 
Join your friends and family to help you to get well. I know the thing you've done are not the decent men you really are. The drinker volunteers to go look at the treatment center after the specialist dispels a myth, no bars, no shark treatments, no forced illness. There's time set aside. Will he go now just to look? Perhaps check in later this week for just 10 days to decide whether or not he has a problem and can benefit from treatment. The specialist congratulates the man for his commitment, and you do too. He embraces it half-hearted and, we and weary, but his children are swallowed up in the big man's arms for a teary farewell. You get the high sign to move out quickly so they can drive to the treatment center. He won't need the hidden suitcase, at least not yet. But when the man does check in at the end of the week, it's with a suitcase he's packed himself. Fear of the unknown fills his eyes, but this is his decision. In the next mail, the people who care enough to put their friendship on the line receive notes from the man who was forced to recognize that he had a disease. And several days later, when you drop by the treatment center to pick up his dirty laundry, the attached note is the best you ever know received. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I'm Ted, and I'm an alcoholic. The nightmare is over from Jan Michelle. There's an intervention story. And with that, thank you very much for listening. God bless you. And give them heaven, family. Readings of today is the um, the Elanon traditions. Tradition one takes on a new meaning for me when another member share their interpretation that unity includes coming to meetings, even when life was going well for her. Her insight helped me look at meetings attendance as both an act of unity with other members and a commitment to my own growth and well-being. In the beginning of unity, purpose meant I could come to a room full of people who accepted my irrational thinking. They offered me an encouraging hug rather than telling me to shape up instead of rejecting me for being different. They showed me how alike we all are by sharing their experience, strength, and hope. Through these types of healthy encounters, I began to feel a bond with other members. I felt united with them through a common experience. As I worked my program, I became more unified in my own mind, body, and spirit. Now, unity of purpose means it's time for me to attend meetings, not just for what I need, but what, what I can offer. How else will newcomers know there's an end to their suffering if I and other members in recovery don't show up when things are going well? How will they learn that they too can smile again if they don't see our smiles? What about the longtime members who slip and forget the help available to them until we offer it? I might need this type of prompting something sometime myself. When I come to a meeting during my good times, others are reminded that whatever their problems, there is help and hope in Elnon. Thought for the day. As Elnon leads me to peace and serenity, I increasingly become an example of to struggling members 
that such a life is possible. Reaching out gave me a new perspective in our common welfare. Wow, when I got busy, I got better. My best thinking and my best efforts proved insufficient to the task of restoring me to sanity. My life had been completely unmanageable. In the program, I heard that a power greater than myself could bring order into my life. I began opening my mind to the possibility. To me, step two is all about hope. It's the process by which I became become free from whatever problem is bothering me. It gives me something else to do, somewhere else to go when my life becomes unmanageable. I learn to look beyond myself for answers. Coming to believe is a process for me. First, I came to believe that others have faith and that their belief in a higher power somehow makes a difference in their lives. I can see peace, love, and happiness in many of the people at meetings, and I yearn to possess those qualities myself. Gradually, my mind opened to the possibility that, that I, too, can experience serenity. Eventually, I became willing to believe, but even that comes in stages, plenty of times. I need to ask my higher power for the willingness to be willing. Finally, I believe. Exhilarating flows through me. The door to a new reality opens wide. I realize this revelation is just the beginning. I am not restored to sanity in an instant. However, step two gives me hope I can be healed because I know, now know, and believe in the source of all healing. My higher power is there for me once I choose faith, sanity, and healing for my life. A thought for the today, the phrase, Came to believe reminds me that faith is a process, not, not an event from which sanity arises. And the basic spiritual principle introduced in step two suggests that there is a power greater than we are that provides hope for sanity, whether we are living with active alcoholism or not. The alcoholic was obsessed with alcohol, and I was obsessed with the alcoholic. I watched, monitored, controlled, and exercised my need to feel hurt. I felt self-pity, embarrassment, superiority, resentment, and anger. All of these took obsessive turns, filling my mind and heart. I wonder why I indulged in these draining behaviors and emotions, which had only resulted in further misery for me. In Elanon, I begin to realize that the wretchedness and gloom, although familiar and comfortable to an extent, were optional. Serenity is possible with changes in my attitude, expectations, and responses. Today, I want to exercise my option to be happy, to feel calm and good. One of my favorite ways to turn my attitude around is to apply the slogan, How important is it? How important is it? I closed my eyes and began to look at my situation in a large, maybe even universal context. First, I imagined my little apartment and then my town. I visualized my state and then my country as if on a map. Then the whole world comes into view. If I need to, I even extend my imagination into the planetary universe and the Milky Way. I think of all living beings in this great big world and I ask myself, how important is it? The larger my world becomes, the more my problem and I shrink. In the grand scheme of things, what am I 
dealing with usually is not earth shattering. This visualization made me to realize how important it really is so I can relax and enjoy the pleasant things in my life. Doubt for the day. Sometimes happiness and serenity are a matter of perspective. Saying how important is it can help us to be cool under stress. That way we can see and save energy for the first things, for the things that really matter. Concept one, the ultimate responsibility and authority for Al-Anon World Service belongs to the Al-Anon groups, lays out clearly the source of accountability for Al-Anon. Other legacies describe how the groups can best exercise this accountability. In this way, there's a match between what is expected at the groups and their capacity to meet the, these expectations. Elon as a whole can move forward with confidence. Concept 1 teaches me that I am an individual person separated from human beings and as such I have no responsibility for authority over them. I still have people in my life who want me to take on their responsibilities. However, Elon helps me to make clear delineations between what does and doesn't belong to me. It also gives me tools such as detachment, live and let live, step 10 and keeping focus on me to help me keep those demarcations clear. Such a match between expectation and ability were missing in my alcoholic family. Authority and responsibility were often misplaced. I can remember as an adolescent, after meditating my parents' drunken fights, thanks to Elon, I knew I now I knew ending their fights was not my responsibility. As a child, I simply didn't have the authority to do so. I also remember my alcoholic father once suggesting I had caused the breakup of, of his second marriage. I didn't know better at the time, so I took on the guilt of that allegation. It took me a while in the program before I understood that the success or failure of a relationship depends on the particular par- parties involved. Not for the day. Just because someone tries to throw off his or her responsibilities my way doesn't mean I have to catch them. My program helps me detach from what doesn't belong to me. Concept 1 shows me where my responsibility is. Alrighty. Intriguing writings written by Elon members from all over the country. Food for thought, folks. Food for thought. Read a couple more here. After working Elon's 12 steps zealously for over a year, I was despondent over my continual lapse into self-pity and resentment over the alcoholic's inability to give me the emotional support I wanted. One evening during a meditation on the sixth and seventh step, these words seemed to flash in my mind. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and we humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. I suddenly realized that much of my zealous working of the program had been the exercise of my own limited power. With a new and sincere humility, I asked God to remove my shortcomings. 
When I saw the alcoholic the next morning, it was as if a veil had been lifted from my eyes. I saw her suffering, struggling to stay sober, and I had compassion for my own struggle as well. My self-pity and resentment were gone. I wanted to be ready for shortcomings to be removed, and I will do what I can to prepare. I can develop a non-germental awareness of myself, accept what I discover, and be fully willing to change. But I lack the power to heal myself. Only my higher power can do that. And the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage is I accept the fact that I need help in being restored to sanity and that I cannot achieve this without help. Living with alcoholism, I learned that plans could change at any moment and that the rules varied accordingly. I developed a deep mistrust of everyone and everything because I could could count on nothing. As a result, I have often found myself jumping at any opportunity without thinking it through. Behind my action was a sense of desperation. I better grab this now, this may be my only chance. Elna showed me a different approach. I can live one day at a time. I can base my choices on what I feel is right for me today, rather than on what I fear I might lose sometime in the future. I can think before I react to my fears, and remember, that's easy does it. If I feel unable to do something today, I trust that there will be another opportunity of it sometime I mean I am meant to do. It doesn't have to be now or never, all or nothing. Today I don't have to be limited by my own fears, instead I can do what seems right. I do not have to follow every suggestion or take every offer I receive. I can consider my options and pray for the guidance to choose what is best before me. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, There is a guidance for each of us, and by lowly listening we shall hear the right word. Place yourself in the middle of the stream of power and wisdom which flows into your life, and without effort you are impelled to truth and to perfect contentment. Amen. The word of the Lord. Oh, the word of the Lord. I thought I was reading my Bible there for a minute. Dozing off. One more reading. I thought that if I stopped enabling the alcoholic in my life, the drinking would stop. When the drinking seemed to get worse instead of better, once again I thought I had done something wrong. I was still trying to control alcoholism and its symptoms. Elon helped me to learn that I am powerless. I cannot stop an alcoholic from drinking. If I choose to stop contributing to the problem, I do so because it seems to be the right thing to do, something that will help me to feel better about myself. When I change my behavior, the behavior of those around me may also change, but there is no guarantee that it will change for my liking. Today I am learning to make choices because they are good for me, not because of the effects they might have on others. It is hard to stop acting as I have in the past, but with Elna's support I can be the one to break the pattern. I can choose to do what I think is right for me. And Jane Seymour said, have you have to count on? You have to count on living 
every single day in a way you believe will make you feel good about your life. Jane Seymour. Beautiful, beautiful story. Okay, I said one more, but one more after this one, one more, okay? Taking the first step is not a matter of reading the words admitted we are powerless, but of impressing them so deeply on our consciousness that the admitting will be established as a part of way of thinking and feeling. We may read and repeat this step hundreds of times and still fail to use it in the way we think and act. If we really accepted the fact that we have no authority or power over any other human being, we would not so try to compel the drinker to do what we wanted him to do. Have I attained the frame of mind? Can I make it myself let go of the problems? Today's reminder. I will look back upon all things I have done to make the alcoholic stop drinking has it produced one iota of improvement to scold, weep, complain, accuse, reason, appeal, or threaten? Am I any better of today for indulging in those futile gestures? Is the drinker any closer to sobriety or in a situation worse? I pray for the wisdom to, re- to realize that progress being begins only when I am ready to detail myself from the idea that I, that I alone can control and solve another's problems. Again, I pray for the wisdom to realize that progress begins only when I am ready to detach myself from the idea that I alone can control and solve another person's problems. Beautiful, beautiful reading of the l material. Thank you. Along spiritual lines, an article coming to us from A.A. Grapevine, August 1998. It's always dark at the beginning. That's the title of it. It's always dark at the beginning. We had a meeting on the topic of higher power, and I didn't speak, but I kept thinking about it. I was frustrated that I hadn't been able to come up with anything at all to say about the most essential part of my AA program, and I wanted to tell newcomers who were skeptical of religion that this was something totally different, something they would come to love and rely on. I wanted to explain how it differs from the God concept of the religion in which I was raised and why it is so reassuring to me, but I couldn't figure it out myself. I remember that one man, Bob, who has since died, used to say about his higher power, if it were small enough for me to understand, it wouldn't be big enough to do me any good. I guess his words explain my problem in articulating anything about who or what my higher power is and how it works in my life. But I still want to explore my own beliefs and try to clarify my thoughts. When I came into AA and for a long time afterwards, I reacted to the word God in much the same way that I reacted to the taste of a slice of lemon with a wince and a shiver. That had been true for many years, ever since college, 
when I stopped going to church and I decided that religion was simply irrelevant. I didn't believe in God anymore. I didn't see any reason to. For one thing, he had never responded to my pleas about my parents' drinking. He was all-powerful and completely loving, but he chose not to do anything at all to change the situation. I couldn't understand that. So instead of continuing to accept the mysterious way of God's love, I decided to give up on it and to focus instead on doing what gave me pleasure. The only problem was I did too much of it and did it for years and years, long after it had stopped being fun and after it had cost me and other people a good deal of pain. I was increasingly dependent on alcohol and really lost in the big adult world, unable to cope with the problems of daily life and suffering periods of severe depression. I grasped at spirituality from time to time. Eastern religions appealed to me. I took some yoga classes and was intrigued by this physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual discipline. But I continued to drink and was unable to sustain any of the practices as a way of life. I could do it for a while, but then I get drunk. After coming to AA, I was still weary of the word God for a long time. But I could accept the group as a power greater than myself. I could feel the strength there. Again, Bob had an explanation. He used the word synergy. synergy. It explains a process in biology by which two or more organisms together are able to achieve an effect that neither can achieve individually. That made sense to me. I saw it happen week after week as we went around in the table and created a spirit that couldn't be found anywhere else. I was told that I could use whatever higher power worked for me, and I did. I liked the Native American great spirit that showed itself in nature. From early sobriety, I found nature to be a wonderful place to find serenity. I heard people say that a higher power can even be a doorknob. Personally, I don't understand how a doorknob can be any source of serenity, but I do understand that a higher power can be anything that keeps you sober, anything in your world that gives you hope and strength that has meaning for you. One time, I adopted a character from a children's movie my daughter was watching, The Never-Ending Story. In it, a beautiful little princess who must have been 11 years old calms some nervous adventurers by saying in her lovely soft boy, It is always dark at the beginning. I adopted her right then as a higher power. Her words and gentleness have come back to me again and again at times when I needed them. We all have our own personal inspirations. After I did my fourth step, I began to listen to the still, small voice inside me that gave me guidance according to how honest I was with myself. I had denied myself access to that truth when I was drinking. It hurt too much. Now, when I was sober, those difficult feelings were the key to my spirituality and my serenity, the material from which to make my new life. Somehow that truth inside me I knew was the voice of my higher power. 
When I've been coming to AA meetings for several months, I had an insight that made me feel much better than I had in a long time. Surprising myself, I said at a meeting, God loves me. I was embarrassed after I said it. I figured everyone around the table was wincing and grabbing into the doorknobs. At the same time, the announcement was a beginning for me. I knew that I had a higher power who loved me no matter what. Whether I was a failure or a success, whether things were going well or badly, that was not was more than I could say for myself. I was a fair-weather friend even to myself. Before I came into AA, I was able to stay sober for a week or two on my own, but then things would go badly and I'd drink again. Why should I keep up this self-denial for nothing? Am I crazy? I'll never get my life together. I might as well drink. Or things will go well. Look at me. I'm doing great. Why am I sitting home alone? And I would drink. I can't stay sober just depending on myself because I change too much. The same with other people. I cannot let my sobriety depend on them because they change too. I sabotage myself if I attach my sobriety to people, places, or things. I can, for example, pay too much attention to any material gains or successes I may have as a result of sobriety. What if I lose them? I might think I have a reason to drink. And yet, I seem to need something to hang on to. That's where my higher power comes in. Even though I still don't know exactly who or she or, or it it is, I know that it doesn't change with the weather or the circumstances of my life or the faces of the moon. I also know that my higher power loves me just as I am and has a plan for me. Maybe that plan includes being hurt enough for my parents drinking as a child to recognize the same patterns in myself seek help in AA, and share my experience, strength, and hope with others who want to get sober. I know it doesn't sound logical, but it works. It's just too big for me to really define, and I thank God for that. Lindy from Carbondale, Illinois. It's showtime, spiritual awakenings from Grapevine, 2009, June. Isolated in a small Mexican town, a woman gets out of self and into action. Something obviously needed to be done in my 18 months of recovery. I prayed for God to take my will and my life as he had done early in my sobriety, but my alcoholism was creeping back into my life demanding to reassert a central place as my physical and physical health returned I felt my initial elation and freedom slowly turning to a vague dissatisfaction a mounting sense of not enough enough what I asked myself stymed my feelings were hurt from frequent small things began to increasingly irritate me and the quiet moments I used to relish were becoming, dare I say it, boring. 
The spiritual intoxication I have felt while placing my entire faith and taking the steps was waning. waning. I realized that as the terror of facing myself and my wrongs subsided and as my amends were made and accepted, so had my urgency to leave things in God's hands. My alcoholism was now counseling me to whip my finances into further shape to make up for lost time, or to finish the book that my drinking had abruptly halted for five years ago, or better yet, to cling to my partner and feed off his 20 years of recovery. I tried to resist him by willpower and praying for the strength to thwart my ancient composure, petitioning God for a balance in my life, but I was clearly falling, fearfully that I would succumb entirely to my old demons. I continued to read the big book with my sponsor. One night, while we were reading the family afterwards, I felt the solution might be my light there. I marked with a star certain lines that jumped out of me. Back home, my partner asked me what I'd gone, what I'd done, what I'd gotten out of reading. I turned to the star paragraphs and told him, patiently, that after months of living in our apartment and rarely going out, I was getting restless. I knew that diving into meaningless activity would only feed my old obsession. I told him I'd like to allow God to replace my spiritual make-believe world with one which I, w I work with a great sense of purpose. I had already commenced work with other alcoholics and much more of God had been revealed, increasing my understanding of Him, but the small town was lived, we lived in held few work options that appealed to me. My partner had encouraged me to teach reading to the teenagers of the group home where he worked. Others had asked me to work at the community center with young adults and children, and there were other leads. I had always wanted to work with teens. I thought this might be an avenue. The next day after my morning meditation, I received a call. The teens at the group home were organizing a talent show and they asked me to judge. It felt like a sign and despite the busy holiday season, I accepted with an open mind and a willing heart. I opened the big book again. Another starred entry made me smile. We have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make use, make for usefulness. We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. The teens sang with their hearts and danced with inspiration. Family members in attendance applauded with appreciation appreciation at the talent on display so I thought of something positive to say for each contestant. After the last note the teens mingled with the audience. We announced the winner to loud applause and I waited forth I wadded forth waited wadded among the teens and praised the performances as many as I could. And they flushed with success and pride and I felt uplifted. I do not know yet I do not yet know God's design for my work, nor need I until He guides me to it. 
All I need to do is pray that I do my part each day. In this way, each day, I turn my ongoing spiritual experience into a sane and happy usefulness among my fellow travelers. This is from Marie S. Nome, Alaska. Okay, I'm reading Time and Recovery, a story coming to us from Chicken, Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul. Oh. Uh, it says, in the age, in this age, which believes that there is a shortcut to everything, the greatest lesson to be learned is that the most difficult way is, in the long run, the easiest. Henry Millen. Wow. Put that in your soup. Put that in your cup of tea. Hey. In, in this age, which believes that there is a shortcut to everything, the greatest lesson to be learned is that the most difficult way is, in the long run, the easiest. Henry Millen. Sometimes it takes a long time for things to heal. Recovery comes when we are ready and preparing yourself for the next step. Often means letting go of the pain inside. When I was growing up, one of the first things that I learned from my father was never to talk about his dad, my grandfather, who died when I was two. I never met my grandfather. However, I did know his son, and I knew that my father had very bitter feelings towards his father. According to the story that I heard, my grandfather drank himself to death at the age of 52. He was very tough on his family physically and verbally, especially on my father. Once in a great while, my father made remarks about his dad, but they were always full of anger, hurt, and rage. He simply had nothing good to say about the man. In an argument between my father and my mother, I once heard my mother, out of exasperation, tell my father, You are just like your father. I swore I saw steam coming out of this man, my dad. Many years later, I was in the restaurant having breakfast with my dad and my five-year-old son. You know what five-year-old five-year-olds are like in a restaurant? They are good for about six seconds before they get fidgety. I was concerned about how much patience my father would have with his grandson. When I was growing up, you just sat there with my dad and hoped that you did not annoy him. But here was my father and his grandson having a great time together. They were laughing, sliding things back and forth across the table, and just enjoying each other. As I watched the two of them, I recall something Bill Cosby said. This is not the same man that raised me. This is an old person trying to get into heaven. <laughs> I looked at my father and said, Hey, this is not the same man that raised me. My father smiled, paused, and said, You're right, I'm not. A little later, during our breakfast, my father looked at me and said, Your grandfather sure wasn't much of a father and sure wasn't much of a businessman. At that moment, I remembered everything I had been taught about counseling and recalled that when someone finally shares something very important, don't fall out of the booth. After a pause, he let out a sigh and then said, but I guess the man did the best he could. 
I studied my father's face, and for the first time in my life, I saw something new in the story is told. Eight years into my father's own recovery, and 31 years after the death of my grandfather, my dad had to start started to make peace with his father. This comes from Robert J. Ackerman, Ph. Doctor. Did you want to take off your sandals outside and plug them in? Yeah, I want to take off my sandals outside and plug them in. Plug I mean, them into what, baby? I mean, not plug them in, but put them out to dry? Yeah, because we're soaking them in vinegar, so the leather won't... Okay, great. Treating them with good vinegar. So take it out now? You bet, baby. Okay. Thank you. Okay, I'm reading Time and Recovery, a story coming to us from Chicken, chicken Soup of the Recovering Soul. Uh, it says, in the age, in this age, which believes that there is a shortcut to everything, the greatest lesson to be learned is that the most difficult way is, in the long run, the easiest. Henry Millen. Wow. Put that in your soup. Put that in your cup of tea. And in this age which believes that there is a shortcut to everything, the greatest lesson to be learned is that the most difficult way is, in the long run, the easiest. Henry Miller. Sometimes it takes a long time for things to heal. Recovery comes when we are ready and preparing yourself for the next step. Often means letting go of the pain inside. When I was growing up, one of the first things that I learned from my father was never to talk about his dad, my grandfather, who died when I was two. I never met my grandfather. However, I did know his son, and I knew that my father had very bitter feelings towards his father. According to the story that I heard, my grandfather drank himself to death at the age of 52. He was very tough on his family physically and verbally, especially on my father. Once in a great while, my father made remarks about his dad, but they were always full of anger, hurt, and rage. He simply had nothing good to say about the man. In an argument between my father and my mother, I once heard my mother, out of exasperation, tell my father, You are just like your father. I swore I saw steam coming out of this man, my dad. Many years later, I was in the restaurant having breakfast with my dad and my five-year-old son, you know what five-year-old five-year-olds are like in a restaurant. They are good for about six seconds before they get fidgety. I was concerned about how much patience my father would have with his grandson. When I was growing up, you just sat there with my dad and hoped that you did not annoy him. But here was my father and his grandson having a great time together. They were laughing, sliding things back and forth across the table, and just eat, enjoying each other. As I watched the two of them, I recall something Bill Cosby said. This is not the same man that raised me. This is an old person trying to get into heaven. <laughs> I looked at my father and said, Hey, this is not the same man that raised me. My father smiled, paused, and said, You're right, I'm not. A little later, during our breakfast, my father looked at me and said, Your grandfather sure wasn't much of a father and sure wasn't much of a businessman. 
At that moment, I remembered everything I had been taught about counseling and recalled that when someone finally shares something very important, don't fall out of the booth. After a pause, he let out a sigh and then said, but I guess the man did the best he could. I studied my father's face, and for the first time in my life, I saw something new in the story is told. Eight years into my father's own recovery, and 31 years after the death of my grandfather, my dad had start, started to make peace with his father. This comes from Robert J. Ackerman, Ph. Doctor. Do you want to take off your sandals outside and plug them in? Yeah, I want to take off my sandals outside and plug them in. Plug I mean, them into what, baby? I mean, not plug them in, but put them out to dry? Yeah, because we're soaking them in vinegar, so the leather won't... Okay, great. Treating them with good vinegar. So take it out now? You bet, baby. Okay. Thank okay. you.